state et nullite, iteram iugo servitus cantareri, vos inam in liberatum vocate estis, frates tantum, ne liberatum in occasionum, detis carnis sed per caritatum servite in vicum. Onis inam lex in uno sermone, impletor diligus proximum tum segutie ipsum. Quod se in vicum modetis et comeditis, verdite ni ab in vicum consumane. So besteet nun in der Freiheit, zu der uns Christus befreit hat, und lasset euch nicht wiederum in das Connectische Joke fangen. Ihr aber, liebe Brüder, seid zu Freiheit berufen. Allein seht zu, dass ihr durch die Freiheit dem Fleisch nicht Rahm gebet, sondern durch die Liebe diene einen dem andern. Denn alle Gesetzte werden in ein Wort erfüllt in Dam. Liebe deinen Nächsten wie dich selbst. So ihr euch aber unter ein ander beißet und fresset, so seht zu, dass ihr nicht unter ein ander versert werdet. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do, sub- do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. Hakest atum verbum domini. Dist ist das Wort des Herrn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther tacked 95 theses on the church door at the castle in Wittenberg, Germany. Most scholars will say that that truly was the spark, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation that changed the world. Martin Luther was a newly ordained Catholic priest. He was a professor of theology at this new university that had been started by Frederick the Wise. Frederick the Wise was the prince who controlled this part of Germany. Germany was not a unified state yet. Lots of small city-states in this area around Wittenberg was controlled by Frederick the Wise. He had started this university, and Martin Luther was the professor of theology. Now, Martin Luther, when he was sent there, he made an observation about where he had been sent to teach. And he said, Wittenberg is a poor, insignificant town with little, old, ugly wooden houses. The inhabitants are beyond measure, drunken, rude, and given to reveling. They have a reputation of being the amplest drinkers in Saxony, which was rated the most drunken province of Germany. One mile to the east, civilization ends and the barbarians begin. 
There's a lot of Methodist ministers who write the same thing about their appointment after annual conference. (laughs) No, he was out here. You, You think about this. Here you have this German monk who has no connections, has no hierarchy, out in this nowhere place called Wittenberg. And what he will do will ignite the Protestant Reformation, an event that will change the world. What he was writing about in these 95 theses, these 95 statements, was really all about indulgences. Now, indulgences really was the selling of forgiveness. Indulgences had been around from the 12, 13, 14, 1500s. But as the years had gone by, they became more monetized. And the way that you got an indulgence was not by going out and doing something kind. You would now begin to buy them. And it was a great way to raise money. And the church wanted to raise money to build St. Peter's Cathedral there in Rome. And so this indulgence had been issued. And the purpose of the indulgence was that it would be something you could buy, a certain amount of money, and then it was a sealed, signed letter, and they put your name on it, and it guaranteed that you would have the years that you spent in purgatory before you went to heaven reduced. It would help get you to heaven quicker. And so they went out to go sell them so you could get out of the fires of purgatory and go to heaven. It worked very well at raising money. So well, they decided to expand the idea and they began to sell indulgences and explained they are completely transferable. (laughs) What that meant was you could buy an indulgence and then you could put it in the name of your husband or wife or parent or child, whoever you loved who had already died and gone to purgatory, you could buy this indulgence And it would help to reduce their time in purgatory and get them to heaven. Now, the number one salesperson year after year of indulgences was a man named Johann Tetzel. And Johann Tetzel, well, he he knew how to do it. He came into town and there would be banners waving and bands playing. And the organ would be going in the church in this big procession. And he'd have this beautiful silk pillow. And on top would be these indulgences. And he would come and and he would tell the people. He had his own little slogan. As soon as the copper in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory's fire will spring. Now how could you deny that? Man, that'll get you. And so people were buying all of these indulgences. In fact, it was working so well that they came up with another addition that said, we will sell you an indulgence, forgiveness of sin, before you commit the sin. So if you know how you're going to sin on Friday night, we can sell you forgiveness today, and you can go out and commit the sin and know you're going to be forgiven. Now that's a great program. While we've been working on our fall stewardship campaign, I've really been thinking about this, and I got to thinking, you know, maybe we send a pledge card to you, and, and it says, will you please pray and think about what you intend to give to the church in 2018 so we can carry out its ministries? And then on the other side, we include, how many indulgences would you like to buy for 2018? 
How many sins do you know you're going to commit and need a little forgiveness now? Now, you know we're not going to do that. And I want to be clear, neither does the Catholic Church. This issue of indulgences was an issue in the 1500s. It is not something that goes on today. And as you and I spend this day looking at the Protestant Reformation and what happened, we will be talking a lot about the Catholic Church. And I want to be clear, this is not about Catholic bashing, and we should never go there. The Catholic Church is our history. There was one church for a thousand years. It was the Holy Roman Catholic Church. A thousand years. Till 1054, and in 1054, the eastern part of the Roman Empire didn't like the West, and they excommunicated the West. And the Latin Roman Catholic Church didn't like the East, and they excommunicated the East, and everybody went their ways happy. And that's where you get the Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church. They're Eastern. And then you still had the dominant Latin or Roman Catholic Church. And so they went on as the strength another 500 years. So 1,500 years, our history is traced back through the Catholic Church to the time of Christ. We would ultimately follow our tradition through the Protestant Reformation. But for 1,500 years, that's our history. And like any church, like any organization, there are times that you have good times. And there are times that aren't so good. And you need to reform. And things need to change. And they get in a bad place. It happens with every country, government, you name it. That's life. And in the 1500s, there were a lot of things that needed to be addressed in the church. And historians on all sides would look back and agree. And so it was that Martin Luther wanted to address many of those issues. Now, it's important to see that whenever the Protestants, the protest movement, that's our name, the protest movement left the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church in the 1500s said, there is no salvation outside the Mother Church. And that was true for the next almost 500 years. It wasn't until 1962, Pope John XXIII, one of the most Christian great leaders ever to live, called Vatican II. And he called Vatican II, and out of Vatican II, they would say, you know, we kept thinking these Protestants would come back home. But after over 450 years, we're figuring out they probably aren't. And there's many of them who are very faithful, caring disciples of Christ. You can find salvation outside the Catholic Church. And that opened the door for so much coordination, reconciliation. It's been a positive, such a positive thing. And you know what I love about St. Luke's is when people join here at St. Luke's, we have people who have been Baptist growing up and and Catholic and Presbyterian and Lutheran and, and Church of Christ. And when we take communion and someone's coming for a holy moment, I'll see them cross themselves. And I know immediately, ah, they had a Catholic background. And it pleases me so much that they would be doing something that is meaningful for their soul. For it makes the statement that, that for our to be growing in our faith, you do not have to deny your Christian heritage in order to be growing in your faith here and now.
So this really is about what happened and now where we are. And in the 1500s, there were some real issues that needed to be addressed in the church. And the selling of indulgences was certainly one of them. So Martin Luther began to attack the selling of indulgences on October the 31st. 1517, tacking those theses to the church door in Wittenberg. But then he began to ramp up so many other things that he was starting to say. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever gotten an argument with your husband or wife. And you know, you might start off by just saying you, you didn't call or you were late. And that then leads to, well, something else. And that leads to something else. And 30 minutes later, you're saying, I never have liked your mother. You know, your mother had nothing to do with what what started the fight. But that's how fights grow. And that's kind of what happened with Martin Luther. He started off tacking indulgences. Not tacking the church, it was indulgences. But that led to this and led to that and led to this. And by four years later, he was attacking the Pope and the structure of the church and all kinds of practices. What happened for Martin Luther was he always came back and tried to write down and say, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? And that was so important because, you see, Martin Luther was 20 years old in an Augustinian monastery in Erfurt studying to be a priest when the first time he ever saw a Bible. 20 years old and had never seen a Bible. That's because there weren't lots of Bibles around. There were many churches that didn't have a Bible. And if they had a Bible, it was, of course, in Latin. That's what we were emphasizing this morning with our reading of Scripture. It was in Latin. Now, only 15% of the population was literate, and only a very small percent were the elite who could read or speak Latin. It would be the priest and the wealthy, the elite, the powerful. And so very, very few could read the Bible that was written in Latin or go all the way back to the Bible written in Greek. So Martin Luther began to speak up in these early 1500s and say, we need to translate the Bible into German so that everybody can read the Bible. And if you can read the Bible yourself, then you will know what you believe And you can decide, are these right practices? Are these right beliefs by what it says in the Bible? Now, now that wasn't just a new idea to Martin Luther. You could go back into the late 1300s and you could look at John Eck, um, John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was a, a great church leader who believed that there were many things that needed to be addressed in the structure of the church. And he wanted everyone to read the Bible and begin translating the Bible into English. He would die, and later the church would declare him a heretic, and they would dig up his body and burn his bones. They were still so mad at him. His follower was John Huss, and John Huss would translate the Bible into English and lift up many of the things of Wycliffe. And in 1415, they burned him at the stake. It would be a hundred years later that Martin Luther would start saying, we need to translate the Bible into German. His contemporary was William Tyndale, who lived in England, 
And he was translating the Bible into English and lifting up many of the ideas of Huss and Wycliffe. And he was caught and they burned him at the stake. So when Luther began to say everybody needs to be able to read the Bible in German, he was playing in a very dangerous place. The reason is because church authorities said, if you let everybody read the Bible, then everybody gets to interpret it. And if everybody gets to interpret the Bible, then we'll have many different interpretations. It will be chaos. Rather than having one truth as laid out by the church, we will have chaos because everybody can decide what they believe. And you know, they were right. It's exactly what happened. Everybody could read the Bible. And today there's more than 40,000 denominations. All these different groups, independent churches who'll get together and say, but we believe something different in the Bible. In the Methodist who trace themselves back to John Wesley, you got the United Methodist and the Free Methodist and the British Methodist and the African Methodist Episcopal Church and the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. You'll have several hundred Methodist groups who all will disagree on something in the Bible and trace themselves back to John Wesley. So what the fear was actually did come true. Lots of people could believe lots of different things. Now Martin Luther certainly knew that would not happen. He wanted everyone to read the Bible because he knew everyone would interpret it just like him. He knew that everyone would agree with him. He knew the truth and they would all go along with it. There's a great story of how after all this had happened, Luther was bringing students together at his home so they could read the Bible and discuss theology. And there was one student who always kept asking questions and causing problems. And so one night the student asked, where was God before he created the world? And Luther answered, he was building hell for such presumptuous, fluttering, and inquisitive spirits as you. Everybody ought to understand what he had to say. It's not what happened. No, all these divisions begin to happen just as the leaders of the church, the Catholic church, feared that it would. Luther, he began looking, what does the Bible have to say? And he began lifting up all these issues. And from 1517 to 1521, it just grew and grew and grew. And so much so it got to the attention right off the bat of the Pope and of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And they invited him. They requested him. They demanded that he come to Worms. And there at Worms he was going to be tried in front of the Holy Roman Emperor himself and all of these prelates of the Pope, all these cardinals, all the uh, prosecutors, And it was a big deal. All his friends kept saying, Luther, don't go. Don't go. You know if you get there, you're in their clutches. But they promised Luther safe passage. And what that meant was, you get to go, and we promise we won't hurt you. And no matter if we condemn you as a heretic, you get to go back home safe and sound. 
But a hundred years before, when Huss received the same promise, he went, and there he was tried, found a heretic, and they took him out and burned him. And people said, whoa, time out, that's not fair. And they said, so? So all the friends of Martin Luther said, don't go. But he went. He went, they had the proceedings, he was found to be guilty, found to be a heretic, excommunicated, condemned. The Protestant Reformation happened because Charles V was a man of his word. The king said, you can go home. We promised you safe passage home. Now once you get home, you can be killed by anybody and not prosecuted for doing that. But you get to go home safe. And Luther left. And on his way home, Frederick the Wise, the prince over this area, who loved his little German monk, loved what he was saying, managed to arrange a kidnapping, and no one else except Luther knew about it, and they came and they kidnapped Luther, and they took him to Wartburg Castle, right outside of Eisenach. It was high up on a hill. And there they took him to this castle and told him, you got to stay here and lay low until things die down. And Luther would be there for almost a year. He'd let his hair grow long. He'd let his beard grow long. He no longer wore monk's clothes. His name was Junker George. And he hated being stuck in his castle. But what he did, he sat down and began to translate the New Testament out of Greek and Latin into German. And not just German, but common, everyday, speakable German. And the thing that Luther had going for him that Wycliffe and Huss did not was a few decades before this guy named Gutenberg had invented a thing called the printing press. And now when he had his Bible in common German, they began to turn out the New Testament just so fast and they were able to flood it across the country. And everybody could read God's Word. And it changed the world. People would read things like in our scripture lesson this morning. Paul writing to the people in Galatia and saying, For Christ has set you free. Only don't use your freedom for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Luther believed that you and I should read God's word. That you and I should grow and think and learn. And we would hear God speak. So that you and I would be led to serve one another in love. You know, right now, we're in a sermon series, uh, Things you Most Regret, Things You'll Never Regret. I, I told you about a book I'd read, The Five Greatest Regrets of the Dying. And they listed out the things who people who are dying regretted, and one of the top ones was, I never lived my life. I always lived the life that someone else wanted me to live. I always did what other people expected me to do. And they regret that when they come to the end. What I want to say is you and I have been set free. 
We have been set free in Christ. We have been given a gift of God's Word. And if you and I take seriously reading the Word and learning and growing, God will lead us to be in servants in love to those who are around us. You can be who you were created to be. And that's something you'll never regret. Have you taken the gift of freedom? Are you using the opportunity that has been given to you? 500 years ago, how many people died? How many people sacrificed so that you and I could have God's word and be set free? Because of Martin Luther, because he wanted us to read the word, there were several things that changed in the church and in practice that we still experience today. And I very quickly just want to mention three to you this morning. First of all, Martin Luther said, we are a priesthood of all believers. A priesthood of all believers. What that did was that elevated the laity and it brought down the clergy. The clergy were supposed to be closer to God than the laity. We were better than the laity. God would listen to our prayers. Martin Luther said, no, no, no. A layman armed with the Bible should argue theology with the Pope. If you have the Bible and you have read it, you can argue with the priest, with the Pope, with anybody. We are a priesthood of all believers. That puts a lot of responsibility on us all. Now, some things changed because of that. For instance, the confessional. When we went on our trip, our trip, the Reformation trip that we went through Germany and England, Marsh and I went on over to France for a couple days, and I went to Notre Dame on a Sunday. And one of the things that struck me so clearly was when I came in and walked around the sides, there were all these confessional booths. And it listed a time. A priest will be here to hear confession at such and such a time and can speak these languages. Because they knew that people were coming from all over the world and all people would want to come to confession so you could receive the sacrament. The idea was you come and confess your sins to the priest. The priest prays to God for your forgiveness and then gives you penance to go do good works to make up for your sin. Martin Luther said, you don't need to do that. You can go straight to God. You don't have to tell the priest. You can go straight to God because you prayers will be heard by God just as much as by anybody else. Go straight to God. God will forgive you and then go serve people in love. Now, I agree with that theologically. But what I wonder sometimes pragmatically is in our freedom, How often do you and I get honest about our lives in the light of God? How often do we get honest and examine our own lives and confess our sins to God? Because no one's holding us accountable. It sure is easy just to kind of let it go. Martin Luther said, we're priesthood of all believers. We all have the same responsibility. Secondly, Martin Luther said, a priest can marry. Martin Luther is my hero. (laughs) He said, priest can marry. Now, that was a big issue. 
because for centuries the church had struggled with, should priests be celibate? You know, there have been times in history when it was okay for a priest to marry. And there were times in history when they said, well, you should be celibate, but it's okay if you have a mistress and a family. And then there were times in history when they said, no, 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 you must be celibate. And they tried to crack down hard. The question still comes up today, and the Catholic Church wrestles with, can a priest be married or not? It's still a big issue. 500 years ago, Martin Luther read the Bible and said, I don't see where the Bible says a pastor can't be married. And so I think it's something that is sacred and holy and beautiful. And if you want to be married, it's okay. That's big. That changed a lot within the church. When Martin Luther started saying this, there were many who were leaving the Catholic Church following his new ways of teaching. They became known as the Lutherans. But with all these priests who were coming into the Lutheran Church, they still wanted to be priests and they wanted to get married. And he said that was okay. Well, word everywhere around Wittenberg was spreading about these revolutionary ideas, this Protestant Reformation. And one of the places they got was to a convent. And there were many in the convent, these women who heard who wanted now to leave the convent, to come serve in the church and to get married. And Luther wanted to help them. In fact, he found that there were 12 nuns there who wanted to leave. And so what he did was he sent this merchant, a food merchant there to, the, to this convent and they brought with them 12 fish barrels. And they delivered the fish to the convent. And then there was a time where these nuns were able to slip into these freshly emptied fish barrels to hide and be getting out. Now, if you're willing to climb into a newly emptied fish barrel, you really do want to get out. And they left the convent, which could cost you your life. People took this seriously. It could cost you your life. But they got out and they knew they were coming to Wittenberg and there were these men who were very excited to know that nuns, people of faith were coming and they wanted to marry. And they said, you know, we knew they were coming, but we smelled them before we saw them. (laughs) Well, they came. And Martin Luther felt very responsible and so he became a matchmaker. He was always saying, you know, I like you, you go here. And, and I think you, you, you'd fit over here. And so he started arranging all these marriages and he managed to get all these women, all these ex-nuns taken care of in about a two-year period, except for one lady named Catherine von Bora. Catherine had grown up in a noble family, but they were poor. And, and at three years old, when her mother died, she was given to the convent and there she, she was schooled and taken care of. At 10 years old, she took her vows to become a nun. Now at 24 years old, she wanted to leave. And she did leave and came to Wittenberg. And Luther started trying to find her a husband. And he was coming up with all these older guys, portly. And Catherine said, no, 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 no. Well, this went on about two years. She was now 26 years old. And finally, Martin Luther said, all right, who do you want to marry? And she said, I'll take you. That is not what Martin had anticipated. He went away and spent some time in prayer and thinking. And I want to read you what he finally came back and said. I will marry to please my father 
spite the Pope, make the angels laugh, and the devil angry. Now that's a good reason to get married. It'll please my father, spite the Pope, make the angels laugh and the devil angry. And so it was in 1525 that Martin Luther married Catherine von Bora. And what came from it was this incredible marriage. He loved his Katie. She was a wonderful wife. They bought a farm and she knew how to do all these things that he didn't do. And she took care of the cattle and the pigs and she made sure the crops were raised and they managed their money and got the meals. But the best of all for Martin was she was a brewmaster. She knew how to make great beer. And she made lots of it and his students would come over at night and they would discuss theology and drink Katie's brew. Well, she was a wonderful wife. In fact, most scholars say, if you hear the statement, behind every successful man, there's even a more successful woman. It was never more true than Martin Luther and his Katie. Changed the church. Changed the way for so many. Third, and Martin Luther said, it is by faith alone, in God's grace alone, that you are saved. It is not by works it is not by buying indulgences. It's not by any of those good things you can do. It's God's gift. God will give you the faith to trust His grace. And that changes everything. You're free. You're free to read and to learn, to grow, to serve, to be the person God called you to be. It is by faith in God's grace. 500 years later, you and I come together on this day so that we can talk about God's grace. Trusting, having faith, being able to read and study and grow and serve, being the person that you've been called to be. And when you do that, it's something you'll never regret. For Luther, he did go to Worms. He went to Worms for this trial and all of his friends said, don't go. But he went. And it had to be incredibly intimidating. A German monk dressed in his German garb. He was nobody against the most powerful forces in the world. The Holy Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Emperor, Charles was sitting there, all the representatives of the church. And they stacked his books beside him. And he came and stood there and he heard the charges and he was found that these books contained blasphemy and they said, are these your books? Yes, they are. Then will you recant? Will you take it back? We know how we want you to live. Will you recant? And looking at all of that, Luther said, can I think about it? He knew what had happened. Tyndale, Wycliffe, Huss. He went to his room and he thought and he prayed. Friends came to visit him and encourage him. And the next day he came back out and stood there and they said, we ask you again, will you recant? And Luther said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, 
I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do other. God help me. Amen. The spark that had been ignited in 95 Thesis on a Church Door in 1521 was now in full flame. It's a moment that Martin Luther would never regret. When you're true to yourself and listen to God's Word and stand firm, it's something you will never regret. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.